Lord, we thank you that we can still stand as a church, that we have the ability to meet, whether online or in person. Thank you for this tremendous blessing that your church continues to gather. We pray over the offering, Lord. Give the council, give the leadership in this church wisdom. Wisdom and your plans, Lord, in a time that it is very difficult to make any plans. We pray that your spirit abides in us and that we have, uh, we understand your sovereignty in this. Help us to continue to march forward, to preach and proclaim this wonderful news of God who came to save us. Lord, we pray for the plans of ACF, as I'm sure uh, they're struggling to, to figure out um, who's going to be online, who's not going to be online, what kind of vision to establish for such a thing, how many logistics, <laughs> the many logistics that are involved. Um, bless these ministries, Lord, as, as these young people desire to seek and serve you. Bless their hearts and minds to um, continue to meet in fellowship, to continue to minister to one another, to continue to build each other up. And we pray for the freshmen, particularly as it's already a transition in and of itself. Um, pray, yeah, pray for their hearts as going to college is typically, unfortunately, a time to fall away. May you look after your dear children, Lord, and pull them close to you, help them to find the fellowships, help them to find brothers and sisters to raise them up. Lord, um, we pray for Abby um, as she studies diligently for her nursing boards. Just pray that you, um, you bless her mind, Lord. Help her to be at ease um, and to walk confidently in you, to, to study well. I'm ultimately trust you with the process and the ending. And we pray for our, our brother, Kevin, um, who has been such a delight to uh, ACF and RISE. And we thank you that he has been here and thank you how he has um, served you, how he has um, brought joy to many brothers and sisters, how he has given to this ministry. We pray for safety as he travels to Houston. Um, and we trust you that you've prepared a place for him there, Lord, um, a, prayer, a, a place where he can continue to serve you, continue to bring joy to others, brothers and sisters. And Lord, um, we pray for this church. We pray as we continue to seek your will through the pandemic. We praise you and thank you for the unity you have brought to both congregations. We pray that it continues, Lord. We pray that ultimately our responses are not selfish or self-centered, but ultimately we seek to love each, that we seek to love both sides, Lord. And as we are seeking to love one another, though we might come to different understandings, may we be united by your spirit and we be united by your faith and understand that, yes, this pandemic is troubling. Yes, the situation in the streets and the country and the nation is troubling. But you abide with us, Lord. And you have paid the ultimate price to give us an eternity of your kingdom, eternity of pure goodness. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, would you stand with me as we read today's scripture? Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, Rooster will not fall, for you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also, and you know the way where I am going. I have said these things to you, that in you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of our Lord. Now I'm by Pastor Hans for today's message. 
Good morning, brothers and sisters. And it is a good morning. It is a great delight to be here with you this morning. And especially because I think in the providence of God, he brings to us in his word what it is that we need. And we are going to be doing something a little unusual this morning, which is that we are going to be going through three chapters, chapters 14, 15, and 16. And the reason for this is that there is an idea that unifies these chapters together. And this idea is introduced to us at the beginning of chapter 14, where Jesus commands us, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And what follows in these three chapters is the reason for which the disciples are not to be troubled. In other words, the discourse that Jesus introduces at this point is designed to comfort and to give the disciples assurance in the kind of context which ordinarily would lead them to be troubled. And so I would ask you this morning to consider what is it that troubles you at this particular time? There's an obvious situation we have with the pandemic. There are also many of the other kinds of things which may be troubling us at one time or another. The, the common things of job, career, relationships, health, all these things may cause us to be troubled. What is our trouble and what troubles us? And these are two different questions. And what we'll, we will see as we go through this passage is that there is a difference between what our trouble actually is and what we are troubled by. We see that Jesus commands us not to be troubled at the beginning of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This command is repeated in verse 27. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then finally, at the end of our passage in chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus tells us that he has said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. And so our entire passage is unified by this idea of not being troubled and how it is that we have peace. And so it's not just a random three chapters that we've strung together, but there's a, a purpose, there's a reason, there's a theme that unifies our entire passage. And what we see as we go through is that Jesus will help us understand what our trouble is and how it is that he brings us peace. And we're going to look at the big picture of what Jesus does for us through his hour of testing that we might have peace. And what we're going to do in the following weeks is we are now, after we have this overview of chapters 14 to 16, we're going to go through in smaller sections and break down particularly what it is that Jesus does in bringing us peace. And so today is kind of an overview over the big idea of the thought that we ought not be troubled and why it is that we ought not be troubled. And then later, we will then turn and look in more detail at what it is exactly that Jesus provides to us as our assurance. And so as we turn to this passage, let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your reassurance. We thank you for the peace that we can have in a nation and in a world in which we are increasingly seeing trouble. Help us this morning as we look at this passage to understand why it is that in Jesus Christ we need not be troubled. And help us, Lord, take the truth that you will provide to us, that it may dwell within us, 
that it might become something real to us that would give us the peace and the assurance to have courage and take heart in a time that is full of trouble. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And so as we begin, I would like to trouble my wife and ask you, could you bring me a cup of water? <laughs> Thank you. Now, there's a little bit of a contrast that happens right at the beginning of our passage. Because when Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, what's interesting is that that idea of trouble has come into the Gospel of John three times in the immediately preceding context. And the person who has been troubled is Jesus himself. And so at the tomb of Lazarus, when Jesus sees a weeping of Mary and her companions, it says that he is troubled. And again, when he considers the hour of judgment that is coming, and he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Yet for this very purpose, I'm coming. And Jesus is troubled. And then again, when he passes the cup to his disciples, and he tells them and gives them the teaching that they are to love one another and wash one another's feet, it says that Jesus is troubled. And so again and again, Jesus is troubled as we come to this very passage, and then he turns around and says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. How is it that Jesus can at the same time be troubled himself, but command his disciples not to be troubled? And what we will see is that the purpose and the work of Jesus Christ through this time is to take our trouble upon himself. And for this reason, as he is troubled, he brings to us peace. And this is why in this particular passage, we are going to be looking first at this larger picture of not being troubled. And then coming to uh, this passage again in the following weeks, we will be looking at the details of why it is that we are not to be troubled. Thank you so much. So what is the immediate context in which Jesus is commanding his disciples not to be troubled? Well, right before Jesus says this, we have Simon Peter's exclamation that, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus' response to him was, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. What can cause the denial of Peter? And the obvious answer is some kind of trouble. And the consequence of this particular trouble is that Jesus has said, in a little while, I will leave you. And Peter, in response to Jesus' declaration that he is leaving, asks where Jesus is going. Because they have this leader that they have been following through the past three years. And now he declares to them that he will leave. And of course, the imminent departure of Christ would be something that would be very troubling. And it's in this context that Peter makes that declaration. Where are you going? In other words, if you're heading into trouble, let's not let that separate us. If need be, I will lay down my life for you. The reason that Peter says that is because he does not want to be separated from Christ. What Christ tells him is that not only, in one sense, will they be separated, but Peter himself will separate himself from Jesus. 
Now, if you've been following somebody, if someone has been in one sense the meaning, the purpose of your life for the past three years, and you've committed yourself to following him because you believe that this person is your Messiah, and he is the one who has the answers that you've been looking for, that he is the one with the words of life, as Peter before has confessed, believing would be something that is troubling. So what we have in chapters 14 through 16 are Jesus' explanation of why his departure should not trouble his disciples. And what we will see is that even as he is teaching them, he's not expecting them not to be troubled. <laughs> he's telling them not to be troubled, but he knows they will be troubled. In fact, he's just said, Peter, you're going to be denied me three times. But he's giving them the reality, the truth, that as it embeds itself within their hearts, as they come to realize the true situation, what Jesus' departure really entails, that this will be something that will bring them peace. Now, in chapters 14 to 16, why is it? that Jesus' departure should not trouble his disciples. And if you wanted to put it one word, that one word would be salvation. Jesus' departure should not trouble his disciples because salvation. But when we say the word salvation, what comes to our mind? Well, we think of the gospel, right? You know, Jesus saves us. And when we think of how he saves us, we think, well, I'm a sinner. Jesus Christ came and died for sin in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. That's salvation. And yet, if that's that minimal understanding of salvation is all that we have, how is it that this will give us peace when the winds of trouble come, when the coronavirus comes into our community, when the ethnic tensions and the effects of prejudice and discrimination are causing turmoil in our communities. Well, let me give you a picture of why it is that a fuller understanding of salvation gives us a greater sense of peace. When Irene and I were coming to Pittsburgh, one of the things that we did was we just started looking, looking, looking at your city. And the way we looked at it was on Google Maps. And part of that was we were trying to see, okay, where's the church? How do you get to places? Where do, where do the people live? Oh, half the people down, downtown near the universities. Another half are above in the northern suburbs. Another half are uh, a little farther north and east. I know I've got three halves there. I'm just saying that, that no. But we were trying to see where the people in Pittsburgh lived. And we also wanted to see where the church was and the location of them. We wanted to see where the Bible studies were meeting. Uh, we were trying to get to know the area. And so we spent a lot of time on Google Maps and we looked at kind of the, uh, the topographical map, the one where you know, they have satellite images and you can't really see anything because Pittsburgh has so many trees that really <laughs> just seem like this massive green. Um, but we looked at, at so many different pictures of the city. And we looked at, oh, to get from point A to point B, you have to like actually not just go there, which is only one mile, but you have to go north three miles, across another couple miles, and then you come back down and, and a little bit to the west, another couple miles. It's like, why are they doing that? I bet there's something going on. <laughs> and what we found when we arrived at Pittsburgh was a lot of beauty that you can't see from the maps. Irene grew up in Malaysia, which has many mountains. So she loved that kind of terrain. She loved seeing that picture of mountains. But when we actually came to Pittsburgh, and actually even the first time we, we drove up here, and we, as we were driving, we are going through the plains of Indiana and then through Ohio, and then all of a sudden, there were mountains. And they were gorgeous. And we were going up and down and up and down. And she was like, oh, this is beautiful. This is like 
And so there's a sense in which we can get a certain idea of what Pittsburgh was like by looking at Google Maps. But when you actually come in and get in on the ground level, then you start to see all the beauty that is there. And so what I'm telling you is that this morning's sermon is not going to be beautiful. It's going to be that Google Maps uh, bird's eye view of John chapter 14 to 16. But what hopefully we can do this morning is that we will see the bigger picture of how Jesus brings comfort into this world. And what we find is that salvation is far more than just the forgiveness of sins, but it is also the power that provides eternal life and the way to live in it. And as we delve more deeply into salvation, what we will see is that the better we know what it is that Jesus provides to us, the greater comfort we will find in the love of God to sustain us through trial. The greater strength we will see in God's provision to do his work. The greater faithfulness we will have as we display his truth in our lives. And so as we get into uh, this passage, we'll see the details of that, but it will also help for us to see the big picture of what is going on through John 14 to 16 to help us appreciate the intricacy, the beauty of this overall masterpiece that Jesus has created for us. And so when Jesus knew that he was going to depart, what he is doing now as he knows the hour of his departure has come is he is equipping his disciples with a better understanding of what it is that he is accomplishing for them. A better understanding. Now, he's already done it. In one sense, why does it matter that he gives them a better understanding of it? I mean, if they're saved, they're saved. But again, as, as we were just saying, as you delve more deeply in this, there are all sorts of resources that are there that will help us in our lives now in peace, in comfort, in faithfulness, that as we understand what it is that Jesus has done, we will have. And so in one sense, maybe I could put it this way. And so Irene and I, just this last week, we signed a piece of paper saying that we owed lots and lots and lots of money. And um, that could be something that would cause you anxiety. I mean, if any of you knew you owed a large sum of money, it might cause some anxiousness. Now, if you were owing that large sum of money, and say Howard, who has become uh, a real estate mogul, <laughs> Thanks. Oh, I really like that Hans guy. I'm so glad he's come to PCC. I'll just pay off his mortgage. And so, unbeknownst to me, Howard goes to the bank and, and, and he pays, pays it all off. But I don't know about it. I would still have my anxiousness. And so the reality of the salvation would be there, but the comfort would not. Now, if instead, Howard went and did that, and he came and he said, you know, Hans, I'm your friend. I really care about you, and I want to take care of you. Well, uh, he's shaking his head. Uh, those of you who are on Zoom, you can't see that, but I guess this is not happening. Uh, <laughs> but I'm saying, suppose that, that he, he was come and say, you know, I, I just really appreciate who you are, and I want to be your friend. I'll take care of you. And, and he... He starts explaining his friendship and his care for me. And I start to see the depth of his love for me. And then he says, you know, and in the course of this, because I care for you so much, you know that as much as you have in the bank, it's, it's already taken care of. Do you see that in my life now, I would have all these resources that I didn't have before he told me these things. So as I realize that now, I know I have someone's friendship. There's someone in Pittsburgh. When Irene and I came here to Pittsburgh, we didn't know anybody. But now, here's this person who wants to take care of me. Here's this person who will go out and do things with me. Here's a guy who might come over and play board games with me. This is something I have to do. 
then here's the guy who's paid off the mortgage. There would be all these things that would bring joy and peace and security and stability into my life that if I knew none of these things, I wouldn't have. And in a sense, this is what Jesus is now doing for his disciples. He's not only providing the salvation, the forgiveness for sins that will reconcile them with the Father, but he is also introducing them to truths that are far greater than just what I explained with respect to Howard. And it is for this reason that the truth that will bring them comfort and faithfulness and power will take a while for them to live in, for them to access the resources that they have. Because what's going to happen when the hour strikes is that they will all flee from it. And we'll see that uh, there's actually a deeper picture than just what I presented with Howard because there will be trouble that comes along in terms of the reality that Jesus now presents to them. But let me ask the question, first of all, why shouldn't the disciples be troubled by losing their leader, their master, their rabbi, their teacher? Well, the first reason that Jesus gives them is that he is not abandoning them. He is departing, but he is not abandoning them. He will still be their leader by going ahead of them and preparing a place for them. Verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And this culminates after Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? We don't even know where you're going. You know, like if uh, we didn't uh, know where Pittsburgh was, how could we plan a way to come to Pittsburgh? That's kind of what Thomas is asking here. We don't even know where you're going. How can we, how can we know the way to where you're going when we don't know where you're going? And Jesus turns that around in a really interesting way because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. One of the things we see that Jesus is doing here is that he, and we're going to see this over and over in many different ways, but Jesus reverses the effect of the fall. What happened in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned? God had to cast them out of the garden and out of his presence because he is a holy God and they had not become sinners. What Jesus does here, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But the wonderful aspect of this is that through Jesus, we have come to the Father. And as we'll see later on, we also receive the Holy Spirit. And what had happened at the fall was fellowship between man and God had been destroyed. But in Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, fellowship with the God had just been restored through one of the members who himself is that way. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and he opens the way, and he opens the way to the Father in verses 18 to 14, and to the Holy Spirit in verses 15 to 31. But the big picture is fellowship with the Godhead has been restored. Now, if you wanted to develop a doctrine of the Trinity, chapter 14 here in John would be a very good foundation for understanding the Trinity. Because as you read through it, and um, we're leaving the difficult task of unsorting that to Elder Gordon and Pastor Adam in the next couple of weeks. But it's very complicated because, as you'll see here, when Philip says to him, oh, you're, you're the way to the Father. That's an amazing statement. But if Jesus is the way to the Father, then, well, then you could show him to us. 
right? If, if you're the way, like, how would you do it? Maybe you bring the Father to us. And so he asked the very natural question in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus instead turns around and gives us somewhat of a rebuke. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Okay, uh, Lord, and we'll sort through that next week. But do you see that at the same time, seeing Jesus is seeing the Father. And at the same time, Jesus is not the Father. Uh, and, and, and it's not a logical contradiction, but it sounds strange. It would be like saying, uh, I'm not Howard, but if you've seen Howard, you've seen me. And we don't That doesn't make sense. Or it doesn't make sense for this. Uh, but in terms of what we see here is we already see here that there is a very interesting relationship going on between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where the relationship is not symmetrical. And here's the point that I would thought I would expand. We oftentimes want to think of our relationship with God as being reciprocal. And we want to have these kind of reciprocal relationships. Because in this world, we want to have the kind of relationships that are reciprocal or even symmetrical in some way. And part of that is because we want a balancing of power, right? Because if we say, for example, that husbands and wives have different roles with respect to one another, also in our society, that becomes something very controversial. Because we want to say that husbands and wives are equal. And in our culture, equality of position equals equality of role. Equality of position equals equality of role. If somebody's doing something different than someone else, someone's a boss, and someone else is the servant, you don't have equality, right? Because one person has power over the other. And so some theologians in our day even want to extend that to our relationship with God. A particular theologian by the name of Terry Bretheim has said, a relationship of integrity entails that kind of symmetrical relationship. But what we will see here with respect to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and us are relationships that are not symmetrical. And so Fredheim goes on to say, God's relationships with us have to be symmetrical because they're relationships of integrity. And you cannot have a relationship of integrity if one party has power over the other. And that's true in this world. But we cannot extend our sinful natures and the way that we relate to one another in sinfulness. So in, in my relationship with Irene, if I have power over there are times actually where each of us in the aspects of our relationship where we have power over one we've not been very kind to each other. We know each other's weaknesses. And we have to try very hard not to take advantage of those things. And I have not always tried very successfully and that I need your forgiveness. And in the world, when we say, how do we prevent that from happening? Give each person equal power. But is a relationship between a parent and a child a relationship of integrity? Is there a relationship between a parent and a child where a parent exercises authority over a child, that loves the child, and takes care of the child? And in a greater and similar way, we see that there is an asymmetrical relationship between each of the members of the Trinity where the Son submits to and obeys the Father that they are equally God. And we will see that each person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit play a different role in our salvation. Each of the persons of the Godhead are working for your joy and your salvation. And they are all doing different things, but they're all working together in the different things that they're doing. And so in that way, in everything that Jesus does, there is the Holy Spirit and there is the Father. But Jesus Christ has a unique and distinct role in terms of what he does. And so in that way, Jesus departing from his disciples is not an abandonment. But what he is doing is he is actually providing access through himself to everything that all three members of the Trinity 
are intending and planning to do for us in salvation. Okay, the second aspect of this. Christ's departure does not deprive his followers of his strength, but rather he establishes and embeds his power within them. And so I, I, I asked Howard before today's sermon because I just thought uh, the reason I've been using him is he gave a, a wonderful testimony at Rise this last Wednesday. And he asked some very important questions and he gave some very interesting aspects of his testimony. And one of the questions that Howard asked was this. We have something like uh, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares, where Jesus talks about, you know, there's a field and the farmer who sows wheat in it and the enemy comes and he scatters tares in it. And because the enemy has scattered tares in it and the tares look similar to the wheat, the master says, let them all grow up and then harvest them and gather the wheat in, but throw the tares into the fire. Now, Howard's had this interesting experience, which I hope ends now, of it seems like people that he gets to know uh, all fall away from the faith. <laughs> so, um, yes, we're hoping that that does not continue. <laughs> but how do we know? How do we know if we're one of the wheat who will be gathered in into fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Or it will be one of the tares that is cast out? Well, one of the answers is right here in chapter 15. Jesus says in chapter 15 that we abide in him. And the effect of the abiding is, big picture is this. As we abide in Christ, just as Jesus does the will of the Father, we also will do the will of the Father. And again, this is a reversal of the fall. Because when God created man and woman, he created them and he gave them a purpose. And he created the world and designed the world in order that humanity could fulfill his purpose and find its joy in doing all that he commanded. Because we were designed to do exactly what God had commanded us to do and for that to be our joy. But we turned away from that. We sought to define good and evil for ourselves. We sought to define our own purpose and fell into sin and death. But if we abide in Christ, that aspect of the fall is also reversed. There's another dimension of salvation, which is that we are now restored to, again, working alongside God. So that everything that Jesus does, he says, we also will do. And in one sense, that would be a terrifying kind of task set before us. Oh, I have to do what Jesus did. Um, <laughs> Jesus is God. And he did a lot of amazing things. And to say that I'm now the one set to accomplish this task, there's no way. I'm a human being. I have all these failings and sinfulnesses and weaknesses. How can I possibly do what Jesus was to do or commands me to do? And the reason that Jesus can set this before his disciples is not only does he restore fellowship with God, but in that fellowship with God, it is now through his power and his strength that we again accomplish the will of God. And so there is a transformation of our character. And so, going to the question of the wheat and the tares, how do I know if I'm one of the wheat who has been restored into fellowship with the Trinity? Or how do I know if I'm one of the tares that will be cast out and burned? Well, part of it is this. If we were to take Howard in his own example, how good for it, uh, how good for Howard's career is it that he spends time in youth group planning meetings? How helpful for his career is it that he spends Wednesday nights in runs? That he spends Thursday nights planning for youth fellowship? That he spends Friday night leading youth fellowship? It's not probably very helpful for his career. But what we see in his life and what we see in all our lives as we yield yourself to Christ is a transformation. I have different goals. Many of you, as you go to school, you're thinking, okay, this is the kind of career I want to have. 
this is the kind of things I want to accomplish in my life. But as Christ abides in you and you in him, what you often find is that things start to change. You no longer are living according to those same principles that you used to live. But there's a transformation in your character that leads you to direct your life to something different. Because Christ abides in you and you in Christ. And this reverses the effect of our self-determination in the fall. And it's a submission again to where we delight in doing the will of God. And primary in that is the idea that we now bear witness to Christ. And so in chapter 15, verse 18 to chapter 16, verse 4, what we see is that the purpose and the work, and so here's one of the works of a particular member of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit comes into the world to convict the world with respect to sin and righteousness. And if we now become how the Holy Spirit works in the world, we too will convict the world with respect to sin and righteousness. And this is where we need all that power and all the assurance that Jesus gives us. Because if we are to do the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting this world of sin and righteousness, this world does not want to be convicted of sin and of righteousness. And so what Jesus says here is, if they hated me, they will also hate you. And there is a beautiful aspect of this that as we dwell in it, we will find joy. And so the final thing here, faithfulness. Christ's departure does not remove him from leadership of his followers. Rather, he indwells through the Holy Spirit his followers so that we share in his mission and accomplish his purpose. And so what Jesus says with respect to this is the sorrow and the suffering caused by the world will be transformed to joy. We're going to suffer in this world, Jesus says. Because if they persecuted the master, they'll persecute the servant. If they hated the master, they will hate the servant. And this is a great thing. Not now. But why might we think it to be good? Suppose I, uh, you know, we're getting used to this new house we're in. And uh, I actually had some trouble with the stove because the stove has some weird kind of controls. I think Irene's figured it out now, but I don't quite know how to turn the burners on. Uh, there's some, I, I can turn it on, but I just hear gas hissing, which, you know, <laughs> apart from playing is, is usually not a good thing. So suppose I'm trying to do this and I, I get the stove lighted and I'm fiddling around with something and one of my hands gets too close to the fire as I'm trying to figure something else out. And suppose I feel nothing. Is that a good thing? No, it's very bad. If my hand is being burned, I want to feel the pain. And, and many of you know that there's, you know, in, there are sadly some people who are in this world who cannot feel pain. And initially you think, oh, you can't feel pain, that's a good thing, but it's actually a terrible thing because people who have that kind of condition where they cannot feel pain neuropathy, oftentimes are incredibly harmed by different things, nails in their feet, and they don't know it's there until they take off their shoe and find a foot all bloody or hands that are burned. And the first indication that they have their hand is burned is the smell of burning flesh. You don't want that. What is it that our suffering in this world is indicative? Our suffering in this world is a sign of our salvation. How do we know if we're one of the wheat or one of the tares? What, one of the things that Christ is working among his followers is that as Christ desires to do what is good, so also his followers desire to do what is good. And because of that, the sorrows that are suffered as we seek to do good become a foretaste of the joy that is to come. Because if it is that Jesus is accomplishing a particular purpose in this world, 
and we see that the actions that we take, the ways perhaps that we are serving in church, or the ways that missionaries go out in the world sacrificing lives that might be comfortable here in order to go someplace difficult, in order to bring the gospel, what they are now doing is they are participating in the work of God. They are doing the very thing that Jesus Christ himself would do. And in fact, it is Jesus Christ doing those things through them. And as we do those things, yes, Jesus says to his disciples, you will face the enmity of the world. But this enmity results in your joy. Uh, the idea here is very close to what we see in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. And I oftentimes wondered what this meant. And as I read here in John, I understand it. Because Philippians reads this way, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of this gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And I thought, what does that mean? That we're not frightened by those who are opposing us and persecuting us and doing harmful things to us. And how is that a sign of our salvation? Well, it's a sign of our salvation in this way. And so this is how we answer the question of are we weak or are we tares? which is that if I am doing the work of Christ and I'm suffering the sorrows of Christ and that I am being persecuted as Christ, then what I see is that there is now that restoration in my life of the purpose of Christ in fellowship with Christ. And so if I am doing the work of Jesus Christ, that's a sign of my salvation. I can take joy even as I see people starting to persecute me because I'm being too much of a Christian. Well, what is that a sign of? That's a sign that I'm one with Christ. And if I'm one with Christ, will he fail to come and bring me back to himself? And so if I suffer for not anything, like if I go speeding down the highway and I get into a car accident because I'm driving carelessly, I'm not suffering for Christ. I'm suffering because I'm a sinner. But if I suffer on behalf of Christ, for the sake of Christ, I become united with him in his work, his purpose. And so that now becomes a sign of my salvation. So Paul and Silas, when they were in prison, they were just pretending to sing hymns and songs of joy because they had been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. There was true joy because they knew in this they were participating in filling up in their flesh, as Paul says in the book of Colossians, the sufferings which were lacking in Jesus Christ, which is an amazing statement. What is lacking in Jesus Christ? It's the personal testimony going out into the world and suffering on behalf of Christ. And every missionary that has gone out and suffered, those who have lost their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ have filled up in their flesh the afflictions were lacking in Christ because in the sacrifice of their lives they testify to the world that there is a greater reality that there is reconciliation with God that is available and they show that they are willing even to suffer and die for these things they testify to that truth and that reality which has penetrated into their hearts when they are suffering for the sake of Christ. I do not think they are wondering whether they are wheat or they are tears. It is a sign. It is the Holy Spirit testifying to them that they have been united with Christ and are one with him. And so this is our choice. Jesus tells us at the end of chapter 16 that his trouble resolves our trouble because it has reversed all the aspects of the fall for us. 
And so as this truth sinks into our lives, will we allow to do so? Will we embrace this truth and live according to it? And if we do, it will bring us comfort. It will bring us strength. It will help us to be faithful. And ultimately, it results in our joy. Or will we bind ourselves to this world? And if we do that, then the troubles of this world are still our troubles. The peace of God is not in our hearts because we have tied our hearts to a world that is full of trouble. And that's the choice that is before us today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending in the fullness of time your son, Jesus Christ, who came to be one with us, that we might be one with him, and in being one with him, united again with you through your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we would begin actively, more and more so, seeking out to participate in your work. Not to earn our salvation, but in joy. Because as we do your work, we see the power of your salvation working in our lives. We pray, Father, that in this church, the realization of salvation would increase, that we would not only desire to be saved from hell, but we would also desire to be saved to eternal life and to joy. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.